Hi, everyone, and welcome to Oscar Wilde, a podcast about film, always counting down to this year's Oscars. I'm Nick Rurkraut. And I'm Sophia Simonello. And today we'll be reviewing Joel Cohen's recent The Tragedy of Macbeth, now available on Apple TV Plus and in limited theaters. We'll also be going over awards potential for the movie and how we think it'll do in certain categories at the Oscars. This, I think, was one of my most anticipated movies of the year for sure. You know, anytime I find out that anyone is touching Shakespeare, I'm very excited, but I'm very nervous. And it turns out with Joel Cohen, I had no reason to be nervous. This was a wonderful adaptation, and I cannot wait to unpack it, especially going, I think, category by category, talking about the different craft elements, the performances. It's a really unique adaptation, and I cannot believe that he got to make it. I think it's just really cool, and I'm excited that 50 years from now, this, I think, will be one of the definitive Shakespeare adaptations that's studied. I think of Macbeth as this sacred text because we studied it in school. So many people know about it, and that's probably what worries people, too, when they're going to the movies and maybe seeing this they're like oh god am i getting that again like if they had a bad experience in english class but i totally agree i think cohen took this where he had to and that was to a place where nobody had taken it before and i like that it's in this psychological mind of the characters and it's very abstract we'll break down Lots of things, but this is a very technical movie, and I loved that about it. But it's also easy to digest, and I think all of those components make it a worthy movie to rewatch, too. Yeah, someone who has taught this play to people before, I hear that like so often, like more often than I hear like kids saying, Oh my God, I'm so excited to learn about Macbeth. I never hear that. It's always <laughs> like, Ugh. Shakespeare really and I understand that because it's really old I mean this play has been around for 400 years since the 1600s so you know that's not everyone's first choice for reading material and I completely get that and I think that what Cohen did here he said something very purposeful and that is like he didn't make this movie for Shakespeare professors he made it for people like you who mm-hmm. are maybe a little bit apprehensive to go to a movie theater and sit down and watch a Shakespeare adaptation. He mm-hmm. had that in mind, and I think it's really clear, but also really cool that he was like, of all the things that I've made, what's next? A version of Macbeth. And when people ask him why he made this, I think one of the funniest things that he said really is he usually starts answering the question by saying, well, my wife asked me to do it <laughs> because that is that is <laughs> what happened. Um, Frances was in the play playing Lady Macbeth at Berkeley Rep. And she had wanted him to direct Macbeth for years. And he didn't want to do a stage adaptation because he's a filmmaker. He wanted to make a film. And Mm -hmm. here we are. Years later, they're doing it. So I think it's cool to see their creative partnership on screen. They clearly work very well together in life and in works. But I'm so glad that you liked it. That means that Joel accomplished his goal and... We have this movie that I think people will be more. Yeah, no, but it'll be a movie that like, and I'll make this comment several times, I think throughout our podcast, but so many Shakespeare adaptations that we have, they look like they're taking place at a Renaissance fair. And that is not what this is. And that's what worries me, right? Right. Yeah, it feels much more approachable. And I like that Cohen, he's relying on the text, which is inherently about greed and malice and about you know this couple planning a murder to become 
the king and queen. And I think that to a lot of viewers, and that's what people want to go see. And that's what he's trying to accomplish too. And I think he does. It will be interesting in the spring when the Daniel Craig, Ruth Nega version comes to New York. Mm -hmm. And we see that on stage and how they differ because Joel has said also that he didn't want to do the stage version, like you said, because there's one perspective. And with film, you get to do so many different things, angles, shots, lighting, edits, all of this that really does make a difference. So we're repeating already. Let's get to (laughs) the background information. I know. I'm like, I already have like five other things that I want to say, but we need to just like (laughs) dive into the background at least first. So I think most listeners are probably familiar with Macbeth, at least a little bit, like read it in high school, have been to a play version of it, have been in a play, have seen one of the many film adaptations, but just a brief description here. Three weird sisters or witches appear to Macbeth and his comrade Banquo after a battle and prophesy that Macbeth will be king and that the descendants of Banquo will also reign. When Macbeth arrives at his castle, he and Lady Macbeth plot to assassinate King Duncan, soon to be their guest, so that Macbeth can become king. Like we said, this was directed and written for the screen by Joel Cohen. It stars a tremendous ensemble cast with Denzel Washington and Frances McDormand in the lead roles, Catherine Hunter, Corey Hawkins, Alex Hassel, Moses Ingram, and many more making up our supporting cast. I think we've already talked about like what we thought of it generally, but anything else that you want to say just right off the bat before we get into our categories? There are quite a few memorable shots, and I think I'll just get into them when we talk about the visual categories. I did love how it opens. I'm not sure if that's Act 1 completely, but the cold open basically is the first part of the description you read with Macbeth meeting the witches or... Catherine Hunter, Mm -hmm. the singular, and seeing the (laughs) reflection in the pool of the two others, which was just incredible. And then they fly towards you as crows, and it like cuts to black title card. Like that was such a great way to open the movie. What I love about this is that when you first see the crows flying, Mm -hmm. it looks like you're looking up at them, but Mm -hmm. then the camera tricks you because then you see. Ralph Innocent, who's also in The Green Knight this year, we see him walking below. So you're like, oh, you're above the birds looking down at them. But then mm-hmm. when you're with Ralph Innocent and he looks up and you see the birds, it looks almost identical. So you are automatically just like, where am I? It's very disorienting. And it really adds to that feel that Joel Cohen says that he's going for with his cinematographer who's also one of the MVPs of this film, Bruno Delbonel, when he said that he wants to create this feeling that you are suspended from reality, that this isn't taking place on Earth. You know, the whole film was shot on sound stages, and you feel mm-hmm. that here. But I like that because it almost feels like he's created this entirely new medium while still honoring the text, but also honoring those classic Macbeth adaptations like... Kurosawa's Throne of Blood or Roman Polanski's version, the Wells version, and even the Seventh Seal. This feels like a Bergman movie too, which is really cool to me. So let's get started with some of the technical categories. Initially where it didn't show up in the Oscar shortlists in sound and visual effects. I think 
it's kind of absurd that it didn't make visual effects. There's a behind the scenes video on Apple TV plus it's like 13 minutes long and it includes a lot of the designers and crew members. And you get to see a lot of how these sound stages become these images on screen. And it's like, holy hell, there's so much done. There's no water used on the actual stage and there's a lot in the film. Mm-hmm. Um, so getting that to work right, to function how it wanted to like, you have the witches dropping these things in the water that starts broiling. And mm-hmm. so that was kind of a shocker to me after the fact. But how do you feel about it missing in sound and visual effects? Ugh, it's just sad. It's terrible, right? Like these are two outstanding elements of this film. Visual effects. I mean, some of the things that they're able to pull off, I also highly recommend that video. Oh, it's just so great. And the sound design too, you know, Joel Cohen, by making these characters older, he wanted to make this version feel like a ticking clock thriller. And you feel in the sound design that clock being at the center. Also, spoilers, this place 400 years old. We will not spoil like very specific things I think that happen in the movie, but we will be spoiling plot elements, I think, from the play. So when Macbeth murders the king and we get that blood dripping from his Mm -hmm. finger it's just this reverberating sound effect that sounds like a clock oh it's so so brilliant i love the sound design Um, and i wish that it was shortlisted it absolutely should have been i think we should talk about the costumes too by mary zofries one thing i really love that she does here is she makes the like battlement like the armor very minimal when Macbeth has to grab his armor, it's like a breastplate. It's not like you're getting the full like military uniform mm-hmm. here. And I like how it really fits with the production design. I learned in that video through Apple TV Plus that most of the costumes were actually in black and white. There were maybe one or two dresses that Francis wears as Lady Macbeth that were color, but most of the costumes were still done in those neutrals just to keep the feel for everything being in black and white alive. I also absolutely love the crowns that she chooses for both of them. Again, very minimalist. Francis's crown almost mm-hmm. looks like it's made out of like wire or like they're bobby pins in her hair. It's very delicate. And Denzel's is like this classic metal thin crown that he's wearing. So I love, I love the costumes here. I think they're great. What did you think of the costumes? And maybe potential to get in because this category doesn't have a short list. It would probably be on my long list for it to get in. I think minimalist is a big word to describe this movie and a lot of aspects in it. And that might be like a downside to it getting a nomination anywhere for a costume design. I really liked it, especially Alex Hassel, who plays Ross. Mm-hmm. His like cloaks that he wears, they're very flowy, but also very stoic. It is on my long list, too. I don't think they're necessarily, like, elaborate enough for period costumes to get in. But what I will say is that she is, like, really respected in her field because she was nominated before for La La Land. And I thought that she won for La La Land. That's always just, like, a win that I thought happened. But she lost to Colleen Atwood for Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. So I think she could maybe get, like, a Guild nomination. We might see that. But, yeah, I feel like... They definitely have potential, though, I think because of her reputation in the industry and the work that she put Mm -hmm. into them. 
So then getting into the production design, the designer here, Stefan Deschant, we're on these sound stages, but I think they do an amazing job with making this world seem much larger than that. There are a lot of visually complex elements, and I think everything being drenched in fog makes it so eerie all the time. And that, I think, is something Cohen really thrives in, is melding these genres of film noir and thriller and horror together so well. Like you mentioned, the crows, these outdoor sets. And then later on, once we're inside in these different castles, it gives everything such a different feel. So I like how they create all of these not really naturalistic sets and designs because it makes it feel more timeless. And I think that's why I like this a bit more because it could be happening at any moment in history. Definitely. Cohen and Deshant are very aware of that. I think that's what their goal is, is to tell you like, not only is this suspended from reality, it's very abstract, it's very sparse production design, but they also use architecture that doesn't fit into any specific period in Europe. I think that is so cool because a lot of the arches and the shapes that they're using, they wouldn't have been used or around in the 11th century when the real Macbeth would have been around. Like they, they don't care about that. They want this to be its own thing. And I think that that is so unique and why it works so well is that Cohen didn't want this to be some like I'm going to rent out a castle and do this very traditional type of Shakespeare adaptation. The production design I think is the first way that you can see that happening, his vision there. And I love another thing that our production designer does here in the scene that you mentioned about the potion. So that room is round. And when Macbeth looks up and you see Catherine Hunter up there as the witches, and she again has this bird-like quality to her, like calling back Mm -hmm. the crows, and she's on these beams, these kind of like rafters, and they're really sharp and angular, and they kind of visually throw you off because they don't feel like they should be in that room. They Mm -hmm. pull you out of it, and it's similar to the way that she contorts her body when we first meet her earlier in the movie and I loved that I thought that was such a cool way to draw a parallel between her character but also just again to make you as an audience member uncomfortable I think that's what he's doing a lot in this movie is trying to make you feel like you're in a place maybe where you shouldn't be or that you can't quite pinpoint what's happening and ultimately you know Shakespeare it's been around for so long because of these universal themes But people get so bogged down by the text because they're afraid to do things like this and actually tell the story in a different and inspired way like he did here. And using all of those elements at your disposal that you have as a filmmaker. We also have an excellent score here by longtime Cohen collaborator Carter Burwell. What I really liked about this score is that he talks about, he talked about this at the Q&A he had at the MoMA screening um, and also a bit in that video how you know, Shakespeare is very lyrical, it's very rhythmic, and he wanted to use that as the melody, and he would work kind of opposite that. He used the language to inform the way that he composed his score, and I love the score. If you listen to it on Spotify right now, too, or wherever you listen to scores, it has, like, dialogue in it, so if you're just listening to it, it will catch you off guard when Catherine Hunter starts speaking. Yeah, I did not expect that. I was like, oh god wait i understand why but i also wanted to listen to the score 
to single out the score itself. And it's not a bad thing. I just, like, if people are voting for this, are they going to dock that? That's an interesting point that I didn't really think about with voting. I mean, I don't think so. I feel like also the music branch is very insular and you kind of have to be a part of the club. Carter Burwell's been nominated before, so I feel like he does have a good shot. But yeah, I don't know if that would affect it. That would make me more eager to vote for it. But I also understand (laughs) that I'm probably not like the traditional Academy voter. I think based on everything else we've been seeing this season, I don't expect it to show up and score. Mm -hmm. It's not a bad score. It works really well with the movie and with the sound design and the sound effects. It's very eerie. Some of the best soliloquies and moments happen in the score too, like what you can hear on Spotify. So don't avoid it. Yeah. But sadly, I don't know. I mean, we also have a lot of other huge name composers who made the shortlist. So it's going to be a tough year for sure. Yeah. I don't have it in my five right now, but I would be happy if it showed up. So I think the biggest one for me here, always cinematography, Bruno Delbonel just gives us a total masterclass in what cinematography should be. Really, like Bruno and Catherine came and they said, we are raising the bar. (laughs) (laughs) Truly. (laughs) Like, where do you even start? From the first image you see on screen and every single shot, it's a work of art. It's so geometric, so minimalist, and the camera tricks you so often. My favorite transition is when Banquo is giving a speech and he comes into a spotlight and you're looking down at him, which is a bit jarring at first. So he speaks, we see him from a different angle, and then he leaves through these spires, which you have not seen before. And he walks into the light, I think. It's like one of those like mind trick puzzles where it's like, this should not happen. It looks like <laughs> one of those like, like MC Escher whoa. things. Yeah. Yes. Ugh. And I had to rewatch it. I was like, Oh my God, it's incredible to watch. Yeah. The shots in this movie, you really do. Like when I was watching it at home, I also do recommend this as an at-home watch. You should see this on the biggest screen possible if you can. But at home, it is really nice because you can put your subtitles on and you can pause it, which makes Mm -hmm. a really great viewing experience at home, actually. But yeah, I found myself pausing and just looking at a lot of these shots being like how did they do that and Mm -hmm. he uses lighting that you would use in a theater he doesn't use a lot of film lighting he described his lighting as you know lighting you would see at a rock concert which i thought was so interesting (laughs) and what i really found to be again another kind of jarring or disorienting thing about this space was that i could never really tell if it was nighttime or daytime sometimes it was hard to tell like what time of day we were even in or if you know, the rules of time were just suspended in this place where we were. And yeah, there are so many shots that I love. I love when Lady Macbeth gets the letter from Macbeth that he's coming home, that he's going to, he's been named Thane of Cawdor, and he's, you know, he met these three weird sisters. And she lights the paper on fire, the letter on fire, and you see her from behind carrying the letter on fire and then she lets it go like out into the sky it is Mm -hmm. so beautiful looks just absolutely gorgeous and then it pans down and we're at a campsite yes right then like Mm -hmm. 
the transitions are like, wait, how did they do that? So great. Right. And I love too the shadows when we're at that campsite. So after Macbeth like gets that news and we're there with Ross and the previous Thane of Cawdor is executed, all of the shadows that are around of the trees and the way that the light is really low on the horizon and the sky is dark, it's um definitely an homage to those German expressionist works. But the whole time, I remember when we saw this together, too, just looking at every shot being like, what? What are we experiencing right now? (laughs) There's another transition. I love how they decided to slow dissolve everything because Mm -hmm. I think that also adds to, is it day or night? You know, where are we? Is this all just like one place, one mind? And there's a transition of the crossroads and I think there's some geometric shape, a square or a triangle, and it dissolves into the road. And it's like, just stay here for a minute. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just one, even slower. Mm-hmm. I think, are you talking about the one when we see Lady Macbeth and Macbeth facing each other? And there's that archway yeah, behind the parallel, them? Yeah. It transitions to being outside. Oh, my God. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it's really, really beautiful. And that's the thing about Macbeth, too, is that it really can be this play of the mind. It it can exist really internally. And this, I think, is a movie that draws you into that. It draws you into that vision. You really can't look away. It's Even though it is pulled away from reality, you feel so drawn into it because of these details that are there. Another one of my favorite shots, which is just, it's I've talked about this several times, posted pictures of it. It's the shot of Lady Macbeth with her hair blowing in the wind on that cliffside. It is just stunning. I remember mm-hmm. like gasping when I saw that in the theater. <laughs> just like, oh my God. I didn't say this for production design, but I have both getting in. I would love to see cinematography win just because it's the most stunning, beautiful thing I've seen all year. Will it? I have, I don't know. A lot of big players. I know. I feel the same way. You know, I also have production design and cinematography in production design. Today on our day of recording, it got a set decorator Society of America nomination. So it's a good guild nomination to have. So I hope that it gets Mm -hmm. nominated. Um, Cinematography, I really hope it wins. Oh, my God. So with acting, who had your favorite performance? So it it changes, which is a cool thing about this movie. Oh, God. It's so hard because the first time that I saw it, it was Catherine with, like, Francis right behind. But now I've settled into Denzel. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. What about you? It was probably Francis for me the first time. I was like, here she goes again, (laughs) giving us literally everything. Like, could she win again? And then now it's Catherine Hunter because it's weird that you kind of overlook her because she's just so good. And then you're like, wait, this isn't normal. (laughs) No. She is walking like a crow, picking a toe up between her toes in the sand. Like, (laughs) this is just astonishing work. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So she is it for me. The voice she uses talking to herself she's dressed up as an older man at one point there's a lot going on with her performances yeah what she does here is so unique because she is a classically trained shakespearean actress but i have never seen a version of macbeth with the witches 
portrayed in this way. And mm-hmm. especially in Macbeth, we have tons of language about birds. But I've never seen the witches portrayed as bird-like creatures. They're always like hot young witches, like trying to seduce him, or they're like old hags around a cauldron. Mm-hmm. And when you get these shots of her just on the sand and you are like, what is happening? What is this voice? She looks like a bird. She's very androgynous. And I read this great interview with her and she said that before rehearsal started, she was doing explorations on her kitchen table with her husband filming her <laughs> being a crow. <laughs> And she would just send them to Joel and Francis and they would give her feedback. (laughs) Francis being like, yep, yep. Mm -hmm." (laughs) Of course. (laughs) Yeah. And all of those like contortions that she does with her body, no visual effects. That is all her. That is a performance. That's some like demented black swan kind of performance. And she also, I read in the same interview that she worked a lot with Denzel, like talking to him about what they were going to do in this scene and i'm just going to read this passage because it's so cool i think she says denzel told me about somebody in his life who made a prophecy about him there was this sense this idea of the prophecy was very real to him and not something odd so it was fantastic to know that story when i spoke to him as the witch knowing that it landed in a psyche that actually kind of believes in curses and blessings Knowing that, I then consulted a woman who identifies as a modern-day witch, a good one. I asked her to teach me a little ritual to protect Denzel because there are so many superstitions around doing the play. Oh, my gosh. Isn't that cool? Wow. I thought that was really interesting. <laughs> but I think you can really sense that between them. Like he is, he is someone who really believes in what she is saying. And I love the shot as well when at first we see her standing in front of us. And we see the reflection Mm -hmm. of the other two witches Mm -hmm. in the water. And then we get that beautiful transition. And then all three of them are standing in front of us. So spooky. That's that play on horror that you were talking about earlier, I think, too. And Catherine Hunter also won Best Supporting Actress from New York Film Critics Circle. If I could make any acting nomination come true, it might be this one. And Mm -hmm. I was hoping, I think, when they picked her that it would catch on a little bit, but it doesn't seem to be. I don't think the Academy will go for her here, but oh my god, it would be very, very cool. She did get BAFTA longlisted, though. That was really fun to see her there, and I think she'll have a better chance there anyway because she is British. It does seem like a very un-Academy thing to do, but that's something that I would love, love, love to see Mm -hmm. as well. And then other supporting performances we have... Ross, Banquo, Duncan, his son Malcolm, Macduff, Lady Macduff, Porter, Fleance, a few others that show up. So who from that bunch was your favorite? I really loved Alex Hassel as Ross because this role typically isn't a big thing in Shakespeare productions. Ross is a very small side character and here he almost feels much more like a little finger. Like if you watched Game of Thrones, that type of character. Mm -hmm. Um, He has a hand in everything. Similar to how Polanski chose to incorporate Ross in his version. But yeah, I loved him in this. And he is another like classically trained Shakespearean actor. But I thought he really added a lot to this. And I think he made this movie feel very political. Like he was the one who was making it 
feel much more like a political thriller, I think, than some of the other characters. So I thought he did a great job. He's the one that you're kind of thinking about the most because at one point he's almost about to kill Fleon. So that's what Mm -hmm. it seems on screen. And he has a hand in everything. You know, he's listening to Macbeth and he's scheming. He sees from above when Malcolm and Donald Bain flee the castle. He's like, okay, they're gone. So now Macbeth is going to be up and you kind of see the Mm -hmm. gears turning. Apart from him, I love the little comic relief part because this is very Shakespearean, but it's when Porter, played by Stephen Root, who is like perfect for this role. Perfect. (laughs) In other Coen movies... You mentioned the blood dripping, and then we get the water dripping, and that's when he appears. So lots of parallels going on. But this performance, it's a one scene, almost one take performance, and he delivers. It's hilarious. He's saying some like absurd things as he's greeting Macduff to the castle. This was just fun, like very unlike the rest of the movie, but it fits. Definitely. I'll also shout out Moses Ingram as Lady Macduff. I thought she was really good. Yeah, I mean, really the whole the whole ensemble here. And I like, actually, that they all sound different. That was a conscious choice. Like, some of them have their standard American accents. Some of them are doing this more classical British accent that you think of when you are going to watch a Shakespeare movie or a Shakespeare play. But I think they all work well together here. And I wasn't like longing for similarities or for them to sound Mm -hmm. or be the same. I liked all of the differences in the cast. And they talk about that a lot of having such a diverse cast of American and British actors. And I think I read one interview where they were doing it one way. And then Joel was like, okay, no, we're going to do it some way else tomorrow. And they're like, oh, amazing. Mm -hmm. Great. (laughs) Yeah, he wanted them to try to all do American accents because that's what Mm -hmm. Francis and Denzel were doing. And he was like, never mind. (laughs) (laughs) But it's not distracting Mm -mm. to the point of House of Gucci. (laughs) (laughs) Very different, yes. (laughs) (laughs) And I think with all of these supporting performances, and we'll talk about Fran here in a second. And I think with her chances getting in, maybe not being expected, I don't think these other supporting performances are going to happen either. I don't think so, unfortunately. Let's talk about Fran. Always. <laughs> we love Frances McDormand. And here, it's really no different. I loved her in this movie. Everything that she was doing was working for me. I was so curious how she would bring that ornery side of her that we see sometimes in her movies mm-hmm. to this. And she doesn't do it in a way that I expected or that was distracting. Instead, she has this quality to her that actually reminds me of a lot of women her age that I know or I interact with who have been married for a really long time and are just stressed out by their husbands that they've been with. They're like, I've been with you so long. Why can't you just do this one thing that you've been talking about doing for so forever? Like, why can't you? She had that Mm -hmm. kind of that attitude, which was a very new way to think about this Lady Macbeth character. Lady Macbeth, I think, is the like quintessential woman's role in Shakespeare. I think another thing here, too, is that with making these characters older, with making this character post-menopausal, no longer able to have children, we have a lot of dialogue in this movie that's about a woman's body and 
what she can do when she has children. So talking about like turning her milk to gall. Lines mm. like that, they hit differently when it's a woman who can no longer have children at all and who is past that point in her life. If she's still talking about things in this way, you can see just how it feels like this is something that she's still thinking about or something that she wasn't able to bring into her life. That makes the film feel really sad and you get that bit of sadness in her performance and I really loved that. I think for both of us when we first saw it, I remember looking at you afterwards and being like, oh my God, she did it again. (laughs) Mm-hmm. So what did you like about her performance? <laughs> I think on the second watch, I really started to notice those Francis mannerisms that we get. She gives so many facial expressions, and I think that's what I love the most about her performance. She's letting us know how her mind is working. Like when she read the paper and she lifts an eyebrow, we kind of see like, okay, so she's into this. Mm-hmm. She like is going to make this happen. And the ornery side, like you mentioned... The one scene in particular is when Macbeth comes back to their room and he's slain Duncan and he brings back the three knives and she's like, what are you doing? (laughs) You're supposed to leave the knives there. And he like had doubts and he's like, I don't know. And she's like, you know what? I'm going to go do this. And she slams the door shut and and she is now taking full control of this relationship and this Mm -hmm. act. And that to me changed the character. I'd never thought of her in that way of being so powerful and really owning this relationship. And it really becomes her rise at that point. So I really liked how Francis was able to take me there and kind of change that character for me. I feel like Francis would be very happy (laughs) with that. (laughs) And that's part of it too, is that in most Macbeth adaptations, the couple is like really young. Like we just had that poster of the British stage version where Saoirse was Lady Macbeth. And there's Mm. this clear sexual element to their relationship like they're really young and really hot and have this like sexual chemistry to them and then in this version like that's that's not there because they've been together for so long they've like aged into this relationship so you have to think about the power dynamics very differently and why they're making this like last ditch effort for power and I think Francis really shows that in that scene that you know this is something like okay again kind of like I mentioned this is something that you want to do, like do it. And if you're not going to do it right, I'm going to do it for you. There's one other scene. It's the out damn spot scene Mm -hmm. and it's on the score. So I would recommend finding this track, but she shrieks and it like hurts your soul. Mm -hmm. And at that moment, it's like, yeah, she's giving us everything we wanted. And I love in that moment, too, how we have the other two characters kind of narrating their observations of what's been happening with Lady Macbeth. Mm-hmm. And then you just see her yeah, almost like a ghostly figure. And you're like, okay, something's very wrong here. Like, this person has taken a dark turn. And it's even worse, I think, when the character's older. And that happens mentally because it makes you think, like, okay, something else happening here. And I think Frances pulls the scene off. This is a monologue that she'd practiced when she was 14, she says. Mm -hmm. So I'm glad that she got to do it in this movie. And I think she did really pull it off. And even the way she ends that soliloquy and looks at them too, even though she's in a haze Mm -hmm. and says to bed and ends and she walks off and they're like a little stunted by that. Mm -hmm. Go Fran. Another thing that I really like wish could happen at the Oscars this year 
for her to pull a Lakeith Stanfield and just show up and supporting. I would love that. I was thinking about that earlier today. I was like, put her in supporting and make her happen. We're throwing two of these <laughs> actors in supporting today, apparently, but that would be incredible. It's hard with her because it is a lead role, but it's almost so supporting in this movie, but it's no lesser of a performance. So it's kind of hard to distinguish where it should be. Yeah, it's hard because Francis and the character leave such an impact on you. That's what the mm. role is designed to do. It's a really powerful role. But it is a supporting role in a way. I mean, there there are plenty of times when she's not on screen, when it feels much more like Macbeth's movie. I mean, it is the tragedy of Macbeth. It is like he is the central character here. But I wish like that they campaigned her in supporting. But the other thing with Fran is like she's not going to campaign. Denzel is doing all the press for this movie. <laughs> But it would be very like the Academy to just put her in anyway. Mm -hmm. I kind of would be okay with her not making it in just because I don't want her to lose. And then like throw off her ratio against her. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Which is so dumb. Mm -hmm. I know. No, it's okay. I was thinking that earlier. I was like, but if she somehow won for supporting, then she'd have four wins, but one would be in supporting. So she wouldn't (laughs) technically tie Catherine Hepburn. Like, we want her to win another lead. <laughs> yeah. Next year, though, she's going to be in that Sarah Polly movie, so she could be back again. But she will be there to present, <laughs> probably, for Best That's Actor. True. yeah. What a nice transition into Denzel. <laughs> <laughs> Denzel is making it, but you said initially that this was on second watch, on third watch? Yeah, second and third. That he's your favorite? Yeah, so when I first saw this movie, his performance, I wasn't really sure if it worked for me. It's like very tempered down in a way that feels so different from what other people in the movie are doing. Not so much Francis. I feel like they're very much on the same wavelength, but it just felt so casual. It felt so conversational. And it's just not how I'm used to the role. So I was just Mm -hmm. like, I don't really know what to make of this. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. Like it just feels, it doesn't feel like it has, has as much weight as I want it to. And then I watched it a second time. And I'm not kidding you. It's probably because I had too much caffeine. But thinking about his performance, my hands were like shaking when I left the theater. (laughs) Because I was just overcome with this sadness about this performance. The way that he delivers some of his lines. I got this feeling that this character has just been through it. When you hear that tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, it's like, I'm old. Like, do I have another day? Am I destined to live this sleepless life So when I think Denzel, when he sees Banquo's ghost at that dinner, we see the birds and he's Mm -hmm. just like going mad. I was like, oh, is he playing this character as like a character experiencing dementia and who is just losing it? Like as he's getting older, he just can't do it anymore. His mind doesn't operate in the same way. And it's, it's a really complicated feeling that you have about this character and one that I've never really had before. And I think that like Denzel made me feel connected to the subconscious of this character, which I've really never experienced. Like this has always been a Lady Macbeth play to me. And in the New York Film Festival press conference and the Q&A, Francis said he's a generation's Macbeth. Like you find them like he is he's the one. And I'm just I keep thinking about this performance. It's really stayed with me. 
it does feel like this has just come to him naturally like he's been doing this his whole life is mm-hmm. playing this character and i think that's what i like you mentioned the conversational part of it being weird but that's also what kind of changed the dynamic between Macbeth and Lady Macbeth for me but I loved that they were two classical stage actors who know this so well but didn't do it like they were on a stage they were and they weren't they meld between these two versions so well and Denzel specifically we don't get like a showy performance Mm -mm. and I love that too because I think of him in I don't know why, but training day, like that came back to me multiple times and he wasn't trying to be like too brazenly or over the top. It was pretty subdued. He has like one or two big shouting scenes, but I think not playing it too big either makes it more of a realistic character. Yeah. And I think that's another thing that I really love is that like the two of them bringing these acting styles here It makes it feel modern, but not in like a dumbed down way. It's not like they're spoon feeding it to you. They're still delivering these lines, but they hit differently when they are spoken in such a way. And these characters, again, like being older, when he just seems, again, like so spent at the beginning, even. And she says, to beguile the time, look like the time. Lines like that, like they don't really hit the same way when the characters are younger or they're just performing very clearly performing these monologues Mm -hmm. and these classic lines. It feels bleak and just really, really sad to me. My favorite scene of Denzel's is when he's killing Duncan. He's in that bed. He almost looks possessed. Mm -hmm. Like it's an out-of-body experience for him. Like he's determined he's doing it, but he's detached from what's happening. And kind of a Cohen-y thing. I mean, violence, very general, but... Mm -hmm. That knife going into his neck so slowly. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, it's brutal. <laughs> it hurts. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's so Cohen. The way that they incorporate violence here, that's something you can't do on stage. And here it's it's a movie and they're like, that's something we're going to add. And yeah, mm-hmm. Denzel's face in that moment and when he's so tempted by the knife, I love the scene when he's walking down the hall and he looks mm-hmm. in front of him and he sees what he believes is a dagger but it's really the handle of that door so it's like oh the dagger is a doorway like it's a way to get him to right a different point in the movie but also like summons me to heaven or to hell and then it's just black open the door yeah fade to black so good so great i love it so i do think denzel's getting nominated i mean if he won an oscar for this like it would be a a great third win for him but I don't think it's going to happen, but I do think he will be nominated and he should be nominated, obviously. Yeah, (laughs) totally agree. I'm very curious if he will get his first BAFTA nomination, though, ever for this. Oh, my gosh. He's never gotten a BAFTA nom. I mean, I would hope so. Yeah. He deserves that. He's one of our, like, three locks, three, four locks, so. Let's move on to Adapted Screenplay. I thought this was a very successful adaptation. I think first and foremost for me because there are moments in between the words where you can see what Joel is doing here. He has pared down the text quite a bit, but you don't really need all of that when you're making a movie. Like very serious Shakespeare people might disagree with me, but I think what he does here is he adds things that make this film have higher stakes, that make it feel more like a thriller. Seeing Macduff's family murdered, actually seeing that. 
seeing Lady Macbeth's body laying at the bottom of the staircase from the top of the (laughs) stairs. Like, that is so Cohen. And doing that without words, just showing these moments, I think is really impressive. And he uses little things for each character. Like my one of my favorite things that Francis does is instead of, you know, delivering more lines, we see her just kind of touch her head and all of a sudden some hair comes out and she just kind of looks at it blankly. Mm-hmm. No reaction. And that is enough to know what's going on with this character. We don't need more lines there. So I like how he incorporated things like that into this and... I think it's a really successful adaptation. I do too. I think when I'm going into Macbeth or Shakespeare, like I mentioned earlier, I'm expecting like full text, delivering to the back of the house, (laughs) getting through everything, trying to understand everything. And I'm like, oh boy, we can do this. Three Diet Cokes, let's go. (laughs) But you don't need that. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned rhythm before. What Joel has said previously is that he edited certain things out to keep it like a thriller pace and that helps keep it moving you know his movies generally run like 100 to 120 minutes and there's never a slow moment so i think all of that worked well he wanted to keep the language like it was and i think that works as well i'm curious to know like how much he took out just to see how versions differ from each other but not because i felt like oh this should have been there or this didn't need to I think I have seen some people who are a bit confused by the dramatic shift that we get, particularly because of the text being pared down, but also the acting styles of Denzel and Francis going from being very casual to all of a sudden everything is very heightened. Like both of them are just mad and we get that very quickly. But at least for me, I didn't need anything else. I I thought this was just moving along, brisk pace. I Mm -hmm. didn't feel like we needed additional like fluff in there to explain anything to me. I think it's pretty clear. The added layer of it not being tied to our earth. It's like, I don't, I don't need that. I don't need it to be very realistic. And then with the Oscars in screenplay, this is usually a very hard category for Shakespearean dramas to get into. The only like straight adaptation that has ever gotten a nomination was Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet, which was 240 minutes. Am I remembering that correctly? Four hours and two minutes. <laughs> yeah. I have never Which seen this. Mm-mm. I would not call that an, adapt- an adaptation. No. Uh-uh. <laughs> and that's not if you're including like West Side Story or Shakespeare in Love, these like different kinds of adaptations, including like West Side Story or Shakespeare in Love, which doesn't really count, but it's in that world and using his language. Mm-hmm. I would say no, it's not going to show up. Again, it's just very tough. Like that stat does not give him much of a chance. It is tough. I will say like, I'm not ready to count it out quite yet because it is Joel Cohen. He's been nominated in the screenplay categories seven times at the Oscars and he's won adapted and original, both with his brother Ethan, but still. And WGA has such an interesting wrinkle this year, which is that we have a pretty thin field of eligible adapted screenplays. So here are some that aren't eligible for WGA. Drive My Car, Passing, The Power of the Dog, and The Lost Daughter. All ineligible because they have those funky rules about having to be a member. So, okay, that means Hmm. Coda, West Side Story, Dune maybe, Macbeth. Like, it could happen. And he did get that surprise Mm -hmm. nomination for The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, which I remember being like, huh? 
Mm-hmm. So it could happen. I, I feel like it will happen because of him, though. I don't have it in right now, but I might put it in at the very end. I just want to see how everything shakes out. Yeah, we have a few outliers. You mentioned Drive My Car. That's the other one is like, does this have enough support for this to happen? Who knows? Well, it does, it but does. <laughs> to get into the Oscars. <laughs> I cannot believe that Hamlet is four hours. I had n- I've never seen that adaptation, Mm-mm. and I think that's probably why I've stayed away. You can count me out, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> We're like, no, we want a taut thriller if we're doing Shakespeare. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing else. (laughs) I kind of agree with that, actually. Like, this was such a breath of fresh air. My God. Okay, so on to director Joel Cohen. I think he's done an amazing job making this his own, adding his own flair. I think it just reaffirms that not only is Shakespeare for the people, but he can make any kind of text and not saying it's boring. Seem no, it can be, exciting though. and thrilling. It can be really boring. Like, if it's done in a way that just doesn't try to connect to the audience, like, it can be that way. Like, I think to have Shakespeare work as a film, the filmmaker has to have a lot of confidence in what they're doing. And this is a case where he is very clearly very confident in this. He knew from the get-go, like, he wanted it shot in Academy ratio. He wanted it to be in black and white. Like, those were mm-hmm. his ideas at the beginning. I think he was very clear on the type of adaptation he wanted to make, what he wanted it to feel like, that he wanted the characters to feel older, and the whole vibe of it. And I think you have to not only have that vision, but you have to have the skills, technically, to be able to direct an entire troupe of actors to these types of performances and to make a film that I think is equal parts ode to Shakespeare's words and why they're still around today but also an ode to a lot of filmmakers that came before that he clearly really loves those um, German expressionist filmmakers he had them in mind when he was making this and that really shines through I mean I think he did a great job he would be on my personal ballot for the year if I could vote for director absolutely I just think it's really cool that he did this it's not just art for art's sake either and I mean honestly so what if it is but I, I really do think he did something that not a lot of directors have done which is make Shakespeare accessible I just cannot tell you how excited I am that this is what kids are going to watch now in class for their Shakespeare movies, not (laughs) the four-hour Hamlet. We all know who I don't want on my director's ballot, Mm -hmm. and I would totally replace him with Cohen. I think he's a top five this year, yeah. I mean... He made the best black and white movie of the year. That's that. Yep. I would love for him to surprise show up. He also, this is very gutsy of him to do, but he does a little twist at the end, which I loved. But he ends with that little bit of Cohen ambiguity with the Ross character. I thought that was so fascinating. I've never seen that before. It felt similar in a lot of ways to the Javier Bardem character in No Country for Old Men. Mm-hmm. I thought, yeah, this is this is Cohen adding his signature stamp here. Okay, and lastly, do you have it in your 10 right now? I think the biggest thing is that Francis and Joel would be nominated together as producers. They share a producer card, which was very cute. I loved that in the credits. And Francis would be the first woman in history to be nominated back-to-back in the producer category in a film that she acted in. Wow. I... Uh... 
It's like right on the edge. I don't have it in, but I really don't know why I have drive my car in. This is like crazy film Twitter taking over. But I don't think Nightmare Alley's getting in. I don't think House of Gucci's getting in. It's like right in there with all of those. Mm-hmm. Should it? Yeah. Do you have it in? I do have it in, but I mean, kind of against my better judgment. I'm waiting to see how it does at BAFTAs. I want to see if it has support from the British people. It did get quite a mm-hmm. few shortlist mentions. But yeah, I think I'm just waiting to see how the rest of the season goes a little bit. I feel like my like top five, mm-hmm. top six are pretty firm. But otherwise, it's like for those last few spots, I have no idea what is happening and what I will do. We do get PGA noms in a week, so could maybe see how things shake out there mm-hmm. but i think overall as a picture whether it gets in or not it's a great watch i would recommend it this is seriously I could so exciting. watch it a third time like oh. why not i mean it's a cohen movie and i think it boils down to that mm-hmm. and i think it's just one of the most unique movies we've gotten this year i'm so happy that you liked it really because i think i i kind of knew i was going to like it it's very much like in my bag of things that I really love but I think you liking it really proves its success and it is a Cohen movie at the end of the day and it's just above all else I think just beautifully made it's really just like a craft porn showcase is what it is yeah I'm here for that me too like (laughs) sure that's great so if you could give this movie one Oscar what would you give it oh my god I just need to go with what I know I'm going to go with and that is best cinematography for bruno delbanel it's just a visual feast every shot is gorgeous what about you that's me as well i was like are you gonna do actress for fran (laughs) no it would have been katherine hunter it was very close (laughs) yeah but when i think about this movie i just think about shots during the day i'm like oh my god amazing amazing is right that's our review on the tragedy of macbeth go see it in a theater (laughs) if you can it is on apple tv plus now So definitely watch it. Let us know what you think. Next time on Oscar Wilde, we will be sharing our 2022 movie preview special, going through some releases that are coming out this year and sharing what we're excited for, for the year ahead in film. Something to take my mind off the crazy awards extravaganza going on and like figuring out what's going to happen. It's supposed to be a nice breath of fresh air. And if you like our show, feel free to rate, review, and subscribe. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at OscarWildPod. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we will see you next week. Thanks, everyone. See you next time. Bye.